word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Uh, so the last uh, several decades in particular have seen a great surge in uh, what we call feminism. And, uh, and uh, a professor at Dartmouth College of Philosophy and Women's Gender Studies, Amy Allen, uh, summarizes how it's developed. And she uh, talks about uh, how there were several waves. Uh, and in the second wave of feminism, she says there was a tension, a ca- two camps in tension. And first camp uh, sought, to, uh, s- sought to emphasize the supposedly masculine traits in women, to emphasize reason versus emotion and initiative versus passivity, um, to, to make it so that women can function just like men in society. And the second camp, during that second wave of feminism, in, uh, in contrast, tried to emphasize uh, the, the feminine uh, values, they would say, or the feminine priorities, and tried to get the wider society to actually embrace those values in society as opposed to uh, relegating to secondary roles. Um, and uh, it seems that where we are now in the third wave of feminism, that the first camp kind of won out, uh, right? And uh, it's... And, even though feminism has accomplished a lot and the laudable efforts to secure gender equality inclusion have unfortunately had the collateral damage of uh, minimizing gender distinction. Um, and, and yet, notwithstanding this drift of our culture, uh, scripture consistently makes gender distinction the main point of marital relationships. Um, and it's easy for us with maybe modern feminist sensibilities to balk at the biblical teaching uh, because it's not familiar to us. It seems foreign to us. But we have to remember that if God affirms gender, dis- gender distinction, it's because there's rich blessings in it and he wants us to live uh, in it. And he, it's something that he intends for us to, to grasp of himself in it. And that's exactly what's happening, I think, in Genesis 1:27, when it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both male and female are created in the image of God. And for that reason, we see a fuller vision of the image of God uh, when in the intergenderedness rather than monogenderedness, which is exactly why marriage is intended to be intergendered, not monogendered. And so I think this passage uh, teaches us uh, that the wives are to submit to their own husbands and husbands are to honor their own wives for the Lord's sake. Uh, So we've been going through uh, the various relationships in society. We've talked about how we're supposed to be subject to human institutions and then as as all people, all believers, and then also how uh, workers or slaves uh, were supposed to be subject to their employers or masters. Uh, And now here we're in in a place where we're talking about how wives are to be subject to their husbands and husbands are to honor their wives. So let's talk about what does it mean for the wife to submit, right? So Peter uh, had previously instructed slaves to submit to their masters with all respect or in all fear of the Lord, right? That's uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And then now he begins his instructions to Christian wives with the same qualification. Uh, And we know that because he starts with likewise, right? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And the word likewise grounds this command in the rationale that he gave earlier, meaning that Christians ought to be subject to these authorities or human institutions not by the virtue of their own merit or because they deserve it or are worth are worthy of that but because we are submitting out of our respect for the lord out of our fear of the lord it's uh, and the command to be subject you know is is 
in, it invokes images of really kind of servile people, you know, who might not want to, uh, who have no backbones, who don't stand for anything, or, and just kind of get pushed over all, all over the place. But that's not the kind of being subject that the Bible is talking about. Uh, in fact, submission is a cardinal Christian virtue, as, as traditionally theologians, Christian theologians have talked about it. And Jesus' submission to the Father is, is, was hailed as a model for every Christian to follow, as you guys know. And so then when the Christian wife is called to be subject to uh, her husband, then this is, not a, this is not a call to be subject because the husband is intrinsically more worthy, but for God's sake, according to his will. So it's not a sign of weakness or an inferiority. Rather, it's a sign of strength and of faith and of dignity in God's eyes. Right? And because the reason for a Christian's wife's submission to her husband is the Lord, that's the ultimate grounding of this command, not the husband uh, himself, that means that the Christian wife can never follow her husband into sin, right? Uh, and we, and, and, and that's in when the husband tries to lead her astray and lead her into sin, then, then the Christian wife must react as the apostles did uh, when they were charged not to preach in the name of Jesus. They said, we must obey God rather than men, right? In Acts 5, 17, 42. But her, her general disposition and inclination still should be to yield to the husband's leadership. Right? Uh, because I think that's what, and what it means to be to subject here. Uh, because it takes into account the fact that you know, it, you, even the most godly and submissive wife is, going to, is bound to run into situations where she just doesn't agree uh, with the husband or just can't uh, you know, reconcile with what the husband is seeking to do. And that's why it's important to recognize that submission doesn't mean blind obedience. It doesn't mean that you check your brain at the door when you got married. Right? It, means, it means that you have a disposition, you cultivate an inclination to follow his leadership and to submit. Uh, but with the understanding that, that the root, the grounding for that submission is your fear of the Lord, not the fear of your husband. And this submission that Peter talks about has a very uh, definite objective. It has a purpose. And he talks about this in verses 1 to 2. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, the caveat without a word is added, be, added here because in this culture, it was shameful for, for the wife to, to, to try to instruct her husband. And so he's, he's kind of accommodating that. Uh, but, he's, but the point is that this is evangelistic, right? It's, it's a form of suffering, right, to submit in this manner, just like subject, being subject to even unjust authorities is a form of suffering. Uh, just as a slave being subject to their masters or is, is a form of suffering. In the same way, a wife submitting to her husband in this way is, is a form of suffering. It's because he says not, even, not just to good husbands, not just to only Christian husbands, but he says even to those who do not obey the word. And so that's why it could be a form of suffering in this being submissive in this way. Then the whole point is, is evangelistic. It, the whole thrust of it is, comes from chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The command then is to keep your conduct respectful, honorable, and pure so that the Christian wife then can win over her husband. Uh, into the to the faith, 
And this was a particular concern for Peter, especially in this age, because he knew that for the Christian wife to, uh, to uh, for the wife to become Christian and to hold on to her Christian faith would have caused tension within the marriage and within the family, uh, especially if the husband was not a believer. Right. In fact, uh, a Greek historian and essayist Plutarch writes about this in his book Advice. He says, "A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him." The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. So the wife in Greco-Roman culture was expected to subscribe to the religion of her husband. Right? And she was not allowed even to have friends of her own. And for that reason, and, and this is important because the Romans believed that, that serving the gods, appeasing the gods was the, was the basis for societal well-being. And so for this, to have this kind of disturbance within the family or to this kind of disturbance it would mean a societal disorder as well. So they were very concerned about the domestic household code and the fact that, it, 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 and they wanted to ensure that every wife worshipped the, the god of their husbands. And and this is, uh, this is helpful for us to see this context because it shows us how different Peter's perspective is from this. Um, uh, because it, there's several really important ways in which he deviates from the, the culture that, that he's in and the way they teach about the way the men are supposed to relate to women. And the first is, like we talked about last week, the this, this, this slaves were never addressed directly. And in the same way, Aristotle taught that women, the wives, are never to be addressed directly, rather only through their husband. That's what Aristotle taught. But here, Peter directly addresses the wives and speaks to them, recognizing that they have their moral agents who are able to act on, them, on, on their own. Right? And and secondly, that the teaching assumes here that a wife can be instructed by someone other than her own husband. Because here the apostle of Jesus Christ is, is instructing, or the word of God here instructs the Christian wives. So that's again adds another authority and another wrinkle to the relationship. And, and even though then, so Peter is teaching the Christian wife to submit to her husband as society expects her to, it is obvious that the, the Christian wife does so no longer in accordance with the principles of Greek moral philosophy, but now in accordance with the commands of God, according to the pattern and the authority of the crucified Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and this teaching then, in this case, would have been tremendously liberating for women in this age. It was not considered oppressive, right? In fact, you see, and you see this even in the example of Sarah, if you look at verses 5 to 6. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's interesting here, it says Sarah obeyed Abraham. And, and you actually, if you look at um, the Genesis accounts, there's actually only one place where it's the word obedience is used in relation between Sarah and, and Abraham. And, and what's interesting is here, it's, it's not Sarah that's obeying, it's Abraham that's obeying. Because uh, you see uh, Genesis 16 verses 1 to 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is Sarah talking to her, her husband. Go into my servant and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And right after that, at the end of this verse, it says, And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Right? And the word listen actually is the same word for obey. Right? Uh, 
Um, so from this, we see clearly like that. So the fact that the the wife is supposed to cultivate this disposition of of, of submission doesn't mean that the wife is going to listen to her husband every time. That only the husband gets to decide what to do, and then the wife must follow and submit to everything. That's was clearly not the case with Sarah. Sarah was no pushover by anybody's measure, right? And uh, and that's that's not what Peter intends for us. Rather, there is a mutual responsibility and honor. Yet the general tenor of the relationship, Peter is exhorting Christian wives to have the inclination, the disposition to, to submit. And that's why Sarah is praised as an exemplar here, and because she did that. And, then, and this is really staggering, actually, if you think about it, the, the remarkable consistency of biblical teaching across the ages. Because Sarah is from like 2000 BC, right? And now here in the first century, Peter is using her as the exemplar for, for, uh, how, for wifely relations uh, to her husband. Um, and then church throughout the centuries, in fact, every major stream of Christianity, the Protestants, Catholics, and the Orthodox, have all taught this. And until the, the late, you know, the 20th, 20th century, we have not had serious debate about this issue. Right, and so that's a, so. If you consider that 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 body of history and the way in which the, the scripture has consistently taught the relationship between a husband and wife, it really is staggering. There is staggering consistency, and which is in stark contrast to, to the academicians or the philosophers. Look at what Plato said. Look at what Aristotle said. Look at what the philosophers today say. It's completely different. Look at what the Jew, Look at what the philosophers back in the days of Sarah said. Right, the pagan writers. What they said completely different but in scripture there's remarkable consistency and unity in their witness and and if this passage still seems regressive or oppressive toward a woman then I think we also need to ask ourselves and entertain the idea that perhaps we are repulsed by this idea in scripture because in our particular culture this text is problematic because right? even today in certain Asian cultures right and Islamic cultures, the wife is fully expected to submit to her husband. And, and indeed, to people in these cultures, this passage will not seem regressive. In fact, it will seem too progressive. Right? And so then we have to ask ourselves, if, if you think about it, so if, it's, if, we're, if we're all about being multicultural, if we're all about getting, you know, if, if valuing everybody else's opinions and values and where they come from, where the other cultures come from, then why do we now say when we come to this issue that our cultural sensibilities must trump everybody else's? In fact, I think if the Bible is God's word, then I think it makes sense that at some point it offends our own sensibilities. And if it didn't, then we, we should be wary of the fact that we, maybe we're reading it with our own lenses and interpreting it the wrong way. If God's word never offends us and never contradicts or challenges our sensibilities. As the English writer G.K. Chesterton puts it, fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they, be, because they become fashions. The times have changed. And that's why the word of God may seem strange or foreign to us, but, but God's word has not changed. And then it, something interesting happens in verses 3 to 4. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, why is this included here in the teaching about wife's relationship with her husband, about wife submitting to her husband? 
And the reason uh, it's included here is because the external adornments in Greco-Roman culture, outward adornments and jewelry and all this stuff, were perceived as instruments of seduction. And for that reason, in light of the, the setting that we're, we're in, and Peter's exhorting Christian wives to, to be faithful to their husbands, to, be, to submit to their husbands, uh, when, when Christian wives leaves the home to gather with the church to worship, the fact that she does not adorn herself externally, but that she goes in simple clothing, is, is a clear signal you know, that she is not going, she's, she's going to attend worship, not a trist and not a rendezvous with a secret lover. Right? She, it's another way in which the wife submits to her husband and supports her husband and by adorning herself with the simplicity and simple uh, beauty of the inner life. And this is, uh, historians can actually, like it talks about the braiding of hair and such, and historians can actually track uh, what age uh, uh, that, that the people uh, were in, um, depending on the, the hairstyle of the woman that was depicted, because it became increasingly more complicated. Uh, there were more and more adornments in the hair as, as the Roman Empire went uh, uh, progressed. Um, and in fact, during this time, like around the time when Peter's writing, there were empresses, uh, for example, like Messalina, the empress, the wife of Roman Emperor Claudius, as was well Papeia, the empress and wife of Emperor Nero. They were all, they had these ornate hairs, and they were known throughout the empire for their promiscuity. Uh, and and and, if, and actually, these they had throughout the, the Asian nations, um, the Roman Empire placed statues of empresses as well with these adorned hairs and such. And so, in, if you consider that background, then it's oh, it's not unlike Peter telling modern day people, you know, don't look at you know the the celebrities, the female celebrities in your lives, and then determine from that what beauty is and how you should look and how you should dress and how you should wear your hair. But rather, no, look to a biblical example. Look to a godly woman. Look to someone like Sarah. That's what Peter is doing here. He's pointing us back to, to biblical example. And... Uh, and what would that mean? And I, and I think he doesn't go into, uh, it's hard to, to translate the specifics here, but I think the general principles are helpful for us as if you're a woman in thinking about how you're supposed to dress, to, to strive for simplicity and modesty. Because, and because the whole point of uh, clothing, right, when God first clothes Adam and Eve after their sin, it was a result of their sin, right? And after their sin, they recognized that they were naked. And they were shamed, right? The biblical account tells us in Genesis three. The, the, really, the point of clothing, if you look at it in a biblical sense, is is to remind us of the glory we lost. Now we must cover ourselves because we have lost our innocence. Right? This is a shame, right? And and to to flaunt uh, our nakedness really is is a blatant rebellion against that. And so then the clothes are not. It's it's supposed to point to what's hidden. It shows that it points to the, what we lost. It points to what is hidden, the glory. Uh, and so it's, it, the clothes are not meant to be, uh, bring attention to themselves. What we do to ourselves, our body, they're not supposed to bring attention to themselves. Rather, they're supposed to, uh, to point to what is hidden. It's the fact that, no, they're not, these are not uh, for people's uh, entertainment, for the feasting of men's eyes. Rather, no, the Christian wives are to dress with, with modesty and with... Uh, simplicity, uh, and that's what he is. What's intended here in the words, uh, be the gentle and quietness he talks about. 
says, But let your adorning, in verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And the gentleness here is, is, is a kind of a friendliness that's contrasted with bad temper or brusqueness. Right? And being quiet here speaks of being calm and peaceful as opposed to restless or rebellious uh, and, and insubordinate. Right? Um, so then these again apply to that context in which if, if the Christian wife had an unbelieving husband and using her Christian freedom, she started to be insubordinate or to, to reject her husband's authority back in the home, this would have caused great, this would have caused great embarrassment, not only for the church, but it would have also hurt their witness in this culture. Uh, so this is, that's what Peter is referring to uh, here. And there's uh, one particular example that comes to mind as I think about this. Uh, and if you read Augustine's Confessions, he talks at length about his mother, uh, uh, Monica. And, uh, and she was a devout believer, uh, but she often had a rocky relationship with her son, uh, not because they had a bad relationship, but because Augustine was not a believer um, at the time. And, uh, and, and Augustine says uh, to God... Uh, uh, to God uh, about his mother. He says, My mother, your faithful servant, wept for me before you more than mothers weep when lamenting their dead children. Right? Uh, he says uh, that Monica wept for him, for his salvation, more than when mothers weep when their children die physically. Right? Uh, and uh, and and at, at one point, Monica is talking to uh, the bishop, at the time, Bishop Ambrose, about, uh, the plight, about, about her son, Augustine. What do we do? What do I do? And she's pleading and she's crying with him. And Ambrose is exasperated. She's trying to get away. He's trying to get away and he can't get away from her. And so he tells her this. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. And when, the, when, when he, she pleaded so earnestly with the Lord for the salvation of her son and for her, her husband as well, Patroclus, who was not a uh, Christian either, um, she was praying in tears for the salvation of people. And he said, it cannot be that the son's these tears uh, should perish. And, uh, and later, uh, it turns out that, that eventually both her wife and her son become believers. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, and the son goes on to become the, perhaps the greatest Christian theologian in the history of the world. I mean, in, uh, apart from the apostles. <laughs> and uh, um, and and this is what he writes in in summary in his book in the Confessions of how her efforts won uh, her husband. He says the virtues with which you had adorned her, and for which he respected, loved, and admired her, were like so many voices constantly speaking to him of you. Augustine says that her dutiful attentions and her constant patience and gentleness finally broke through the defenses you know, of, you know, of uh, the, the husband. Uh, and, uh, and this is a powerful testimony and really it models exactly what First Peter is talking about in chapter 3. Um, and, and, that's, and that's the purpose of it, right? So we, it, it, is, it is humbling to be in that position, to be able to, to have to submit. Right. But for the sake of the, for the salvation of that man, of that husband, for the sake of the witness in this world, for our credible witness, can we give, can we sacrifice, can we humble ourselves as Christ did himself for us? Uh, that's the call uh, that he gives here. 
and and they don't are not to submit in fear, right? Because rather in hope in Christ, in hope in God, right? It says verse five: For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Holy women uh, submitted to their submitted to their own husbands because they hoped in God. Their hope was not in their husbands. That uh, for a single woman, their hope is not in getting married, right? Their hope is in God. And because their hope is in God, they are able to submit even to unbelieving husbands here, like in this passage, and not fear anything that is frightening. Because when you are completely disposed and entrusted to the sovereign God, and know that that sovereign God loves you perfectly and would want nothing evil for you, and, and it's that God that calls you into this place of submission, then you know that you can bear, you don't have to fear anything, and He will provide strength to bear it. And you might wonder, okay, why, why does Peter address the why for six verses and address husband for one verse? You know, why, why is there such an attention for what women should do? And isn't this, again, a sign of oppression and, and, and aggressiveness in Scripture? And, and, and I, I don't think that's what's going on here. And, and the reason is because uh, all throughout First Peter so far, he's, only, he's addressed the part, the people that are supposed to be subject, the people that had no power and no authority. Right? He, so he addressed the people who are supposed to be subject to human authorities and institutions. He addressed the slaves who are supposed to be subject to their employers and masters. Now he's addressing the women. And, and the reason he does that is because he's saying that the pattern of Jesus as the suffering servant speaks to these people who are in weaker positions. Right, in compromised situations, right? And he's saying that it's the, the fact that Jesus, who did not have to suffer, suffered in our place. That's what enables us to suffer in this way. And that's why there's an emphasis on, on the woman here in particular in relationship with the husband. In fact, what's remarkable, I think, is that the husband is mentioned. And I think that's because the, Peter is keenly aware for the need for accountability, especially when the wife is called to submission, even to unbelieving husbands. Because then the quickly we can go to the question of, well, then what if the husband is abusive? What if the husband is, is not leading us? Then how, then what, what does it mean for the wife to submit? Right? So he doesn't leave the men off the hook. Right? So he says men are not off the hook in, to behave however they wish and then to insist that their wives submit to them. Because if you look at it, like it's the wives that are supposed to submit. Husbands are not supposed to make them submit. Right? There's a key, there's an important difference there. The husbands are not called to make their wives submit. The wife submits voluntarily herself. And when the focus in a marriage becomes about submission, then that's already an indicator that there's a problem. Right? And to say, no, if the husband is it's having conversation with his wife saying, no, you need to submit to me. No, you need to do this to me. That, that there is already a problem there, right? Because the husband's supposed to lead and to honor and to care for his wife, and the wife should, is the one that's supposed to submit, right? Uh, and, the, and it's just like in any healthy relationship, right? If, if all you can think about is how the other person is supposed to change, there's a problem, right? Uh, we have to recognize how we ought to change, how we are weak, how we are broken, how we are sinful. Um, and uh, and note here that it's, it begins the same transition with the same transition. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in understanding way. Again, husbands also also honor live with their wives in understanding way and show honor to to their wives um, with respect to God, with the, all fear of God. 
And he says, to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And what does that mean uh, for to be a weaker vessel? I mean, this could this is another thing that could to come across as really offensive uh, to 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 modern sensibilities, and and I I think it it could mean a couple of things. But the, the I think the most uh, uh, the f- first thing that would come to mind for someone reading this is is probably physical weakness, right? Uh, in that and that men are especially in the upper body, generally speaking, thirty percent stronger than women, right? And men also have larger hearts and lungs, right? And so that means when, uh, and, and that's because of the higher level of testosterone, right? And uh, and and when, um, uh, and that produ- the higher level of testosterone produces more red blood cells, so that it enables and there quickens their recovery as well. So what that means then is when a man and a woman is running, when are running together, right? And I've used this example before. If they're running at the same pace, then the woman is running at seventy percent of her cap- capacity, while the man's probably running at about fifty percent. Of, of his capacity, right? So if you see a husband and wife running together, that means the wife's in better shape, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so that's he could be talking about that kind of a physical uh, difference in weak, uh, weakness. There's also a, a difference in, and, I mean, there's general differences. So for example, women have a, a, a part of the brain called the splenium uh, is much larger in women than in men. Um, and what that means then is that when an average man performs better on spatial tests, mathematical tests, and an average woman performs better in verbal ability and memory, right? So there's uh, these, uh, these differences between uh, men and women. And, this, and I think the, the physical weakness is especially in view because it's saying it's, it's a weaker vessel, uh, honor, show honor to the woman. So this makes sense, uh, and I think maybe partly this is in view, but I think it's a secondary thing that's in view. In fact, I think what's even more primary uh, uh, is, is uh, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, I think there, it, there's a very suggestive parallel that helps us understand what it means when Paul t- Peter tells us to show honor to the, to the wife as a weaker vessel. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 25, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body." but that the members may have the same care for one another. I think this is an important parallel in the Bible because, one, it has the same word, weaker, right? Uh, And it also has the same theme of showing honor, right? Um, and, and, And if you look at this way it's structured in verse 22, so on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, so the weaker here seems to be parallel to being con- thought of or considered as more dispensable. And then verse 23, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, uh, we bestow the greater honor. So again, the parallel seems to be that weaker refers to being considered perhaps less honorable, right? And so I, I think what, it, and, and what is in view then here is, is that women, the wives have place themselves in a position of weakness. They're equal to men and, and have not inferior to men in any way, yet they have placed themselves as wise out of fear of the Lord in submission to the husband. They've placed themselves in a position of weakness and vulnerability. 
and and because and though they're in a position that can be considered less honorable or more dispensable, and the 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 fact the truth of the matter is that they are not more dispensable. In fact, they are not less honorable, and that's the whole point of this body imagery, is that in fact the part that we think less honorable we're supposed to bestow more honor, right? And. And when I think of weaker vessel, like if you, a vessel is a container, right? It, it's, and, and I think of uh, what we use in, uh, in our home as vessels, as cups, for example. And um, we generally use, if you guys have been over to our house for dinner, um, when we have a lot of people, we use plastic cups like this. Uh, but uh, generally, we use uh, corningware. I don't know if you guys know of that. It's, it's those kind of, uh, uh, it, they never break. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Like Hannah, like dropped one earlier this week in the kitchen, the tile floor, and it didn't break, <laughs> right? And so that's why we use it because we know that it can handle the use. We know that it's not going to break. It's it's kind of a, uh, it's it's not as vulnerable, right? It's it's a pretty strong vessel. But then we also have these two mugs uh, that we got as a gift from the Millers, uh, and uh, that, that Lauren actually made, uh, and it's a it's a it's ceramic, so we know it's brittle. Right, but that's precious to us, right? Uh, and we don't use that every day, <laughs> and we use that on special occasions, and we care use we use it with a special care and, and and delicacy, right? And it's the same thing is that the, the wives your wife as Christ, your Christian wife has placed himself in a position of vulnerability for the sake of serving the Lord and for as and to support the husband and to be be uh, his helper as God has called her to do and in doing so she's placed herself in this place of vulnerability and that for that reason the husband is supposed to show even greater honor and even greater care and to make sure that she is not uh, uh, she's not for the sake in the place of vulnerability she's played abused um, or mistreated so Show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And this is the reason that Paul gives. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Right? In, this, in the Greco-Roman culture, again, only men receive inheritance. Right? But in the kingdom of God, as it says here, women, wives, they're heirs with you of the grace of life. There's no distinction in God's eyes in what He bestows on a, a husband and a wife. They are equally, the grace of God extends to them all and we're co-heirs together of the grace that God's given to us. And this is how much God cares about this. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In fact, if you are abuse that place of a story that God's placed you in and, and mistreat your wife, your prayers will not will be hindered. I will not listen to your prayers, says God. That's how important this is to the Lord. Um, and and I think it's uh, the the whole difference between the genders, the distinction that the the intergenderness that it's supposed to. Uh, show the greater picture, I think the fullness of the image of God in the sense that we have things 
We have each have strength. Women have strength and men have strength. And together they can show a fuller uh, uh, sense of what that's supposed to look like. Um, and, 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 and women, as they submit and as they help and, and, and as they support their husbands, and the, the men then in that, that can't run roughshod over the women and over the wives that they've given them, but rather they care, they show honor. And in doing that, there's such a beautiful picture of mutuality and, and harmony and unity that we see in the Trinity itself. As 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Right. And I want you to also, I forget, forgot to mention this earlier, note uh, the very important qualifications when uh, Peter tells wives to be subject. He says to be subject to your own husbands. Right? Um, they're not supposed to be subject to any other men. Uh, they're supposed to be subject to their own husbands. Uh, and, 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 and here, again, it's talking about the husband and wife relationship in 1 Corinthians 11.3. And he says that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. It's, his, it's, it's her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And we teach that you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal in power and dignity and deity and authority. Yet, in the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father. And it, that's his humility, as First Peter 2 talks about. In, even though he was in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And it's in that same manner that the wife submits to her husband, not because she is inferior, uh, but because that's what Christ has done. And Christ has shown in the pattern in which he lived while he was here on earth. And I think in doing that and living as husband and wife in this manner, we, we show the watching world what, what the Christian community looks like and, and what the, the beauty and the harmony and the unity and the complementary we see in the divine Godhead uh, is like. And uh, so with that in mind, I'd love for us to pray uh, and pray especially for uh, uh, married couples uh, in our church, but also for, for singles um, uh, as, as they, you know, um, that, that men and women alike, uh, that they would have their hope in God, not in a potential spouse or, or their current spouse. Uh, and that it's that hope in God and fear of God that would enable us to live in light of this uh, complementarity that, that uh, Peter teaches us. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray out loud together uh, 